Fight you two out. Let me know. Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 286 is recorded live June 16th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the warm side <clears> of <throat> the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. And we've got a lot of people in the chat room tonight. I want to thank everybody for coming and tuning in, participating. We have uh, Mark, we have Vanessa the Mermaid, we have Philip, Flyboy is in there. Also Scuba Oasis, a dive shop that's uh, in the process of getting started. They'll have to give us an update at some point. Once we get going, we'll give them a shout out. And it, would you call this diving season? Uh, it's way past diving season. If you're just getting started, you're late. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're late, but you're never too late if you can get in the water. This is halfway through June already. Halfway through June. Oh, where's the time go? I, I remember my grandfather saying, and I was a, I was young, you know, eight or nine. He said, "Time picks up speed as you get older." And sometimes I wish he was wrong. <laughs> Let me tell you, he wasn't kidding. It is just whizzing by. Seems like we were just struggling with uh, blizzards and digging out of snow, and here we are. I had, I actually had the air conditioner on. I, I mean, hard water, and now it's like seventy degrees. It's the standard. Yes, yeah. So we, we've we've gone all the way into th- this is wetsuit weather for the dry suit diver. Yep. This time of year, when your hardcore dry suit guys are. Uh, are coming in wetsuits. You know it is getting warm. Didn't even use gloves tonight, and some people didn't want their hoods. Yeah. And and I think we, we have a record for this is probably the latest we have ever started a episode. I can't think of any time where we've started this late. But for good reason, you were getting in the water. Of course. Thursday, Thursday. Yep. And if I go on the Wednesday ones for SAS, I'd be even later coming home. <laughs> Because they're farther away? Yeah, they started out in, in uh, Battle Creek. So I'd have another hour or so travel time. That would make it a little later. But we don't record on Wednesday, fortunately, at this point. I, ne- I need to figure, I need to get my, like we talked about last week, get my mobile recording rig going, and I'll have to figure something out. I think that'd be interesting to do some some live recording. So that came we... tonight, matter of fact. Pardon me? Eating. That came up tonight when we were eating. Oh. Right. Really nice restaurant, wooden background. It was pretty quiet where we were at. We said, hell, we could have sat up, put up some laptops, and had mm-hmm. a yeah there. Excellent. Um, so where's next week's dive? Uh, actually, I think some of the guys are starting to hit the river Saturday. And as soon as the river, if you're hitting it, then that's where we're going to be is the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did post all the uh, SAS dives up on the uh, event column for the the website, club site. We still need to tweak on that because when you go to it, it's 
a little askew. Yeah, I, they still got to get back in my my account, and I I think it's a case of one of those things where I was doing a batch of updates to all the websites to get everything current, and I think I turned the security on just a little too high, so I need to get back in there. Well, uh, use my password if you yeah. have to. Because the URL I think is a little different too for the admin side. Uh, I think I did. Well, I was trying some security plugins. And then work has been crazy, and we, again, back on the Scuba Obsessed website, which is www.scubaobsessed.com, I do have somebody lined up who has volunteered to help us, and I owe him an account. He can't really do much updating without an account, so I've got to get some time. Hopefully that will happen tomorrow, but uh, it could take me even longer. Uh, I've, I, this, it seems like everything is just a building up. The, the only good thing is the kids are out of school and that has drastically cut down on the, the school-related activities. Now it's just a matter of, matter of graduations, which is continuing on. I've got like two or three more graduation parties just this weekend, which will keep me from diving once again. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. See, did I, did I hear my show notes. So here's a follow-up, and this one was a tip from Vanessa. And we had covered this episode, uh, this article, a couple times so far. If you can remember out there off the sunny coast of California, a dive boat left the diver on site, and the diver's never been recovered. Follow-up to that is that the dive boat operator has surrendered her credentials, a U.S. Coast Guard investigation to disappearance and presumed death of diver near Catalina Island has resulted in voluntary surrender of the credentials of the dive boat operator. This according to authorities on Wednesday. The case stemmed from a casualty aboard a 43-foot commercial passenger vessel, Sun Divers Express, which is operating out of Long Beach. And this is also from the Coast Guard statement. Under the direction and control of, let's see, Kaya Heller, K-Y-A-A Heller, the Sun Dive Express departed from the dive site off Catalina Island on December 29th while dive passenger was unaccounted for after entering the water for a recreational dive. Search and rescue effort ended when the passenger, Laura Silver Volker, was later discovered missing at the vessel at the next dive site. Silver Volker was never located, it's presumed deceased. The Coast Guard investigated and filed an administrative complaint seeking revocation of Heller's merchant marine credentials with six alleged offenses, including negligence for failing to maintain proper pasture accountability and misconduct related to the operation of a commercial vessel, and Louv appearing at the suspension and recovation hearing before federal administrator law judge, Heller elected to voluntarily surrender her merchant marine credential to the Coast Guard on June 6, 2016. By surrendering her credential, Heller is no longer authorized to serve as a master of a commercial vessel, the Coast Guard said. I wonder if there's a little bit more to it, because it, she had a hearing which she would have to have given testimony to maintain her license. I wonder if the insurance companies may pressure you to not go to the hearing and surrender your license. Don't know. Because anything that you would use to defend yourself could actually be used in the case. I also wonder about civil liabilities at this time. Oh, exactly. Because anything you said, I mean, if you fessed up to it, like, oh, yeah, I made an honest mistake, then you've admitted your responsibility and – uh, lined yourself up perfectly for a lawsuit. So a tragic event. I'm sure nobody wanted to do it, but it's just one of those things that needs to be pro- 
policies and processes need to be put in place to make sure you do not leave divers. Yeah, especially if it's me. Yeah. Well, maybe it means that you have to put more people on the boat, meaning that you've got additional staff. Somebody's got to be responsible for that. And ultimately, as a captain of the vessel, you have the top responsibility. And since she didn't testify, we don't have really any information. Now, that if you surrender your license, can you still serve? Could I, could I say that was me and I surrendered my license? Could I still drive the boat but with somebody else being the captain? It would sound like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vanessa's saying she was working as the dive master. Well, if she was working as a dive master, was she was she not the in diving the boat? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Vanessa's in her chat room. She's she's in that part of the country and has a little bit of insight. Oh, she's saying uh, Vanessa's saying the lost diver was the dive master. Oops. Now, how how does that happen? I'm just trying to envision that. If I'm the if I'm the captain of the boat, I mean a random passenger being left is pretty bad, but leaving your dive master, youch. Yeah, yeah, that, I agree. The comment from the chat room is jacked up, and that certainly is. Just don't piss off the boat captain if they're if you're the dive master. I'm, that that's what makes you wonder. Wow. See, there, that's a whole other separate liability because a dive master is a professional position, I'm assuming. Even if you weren't getting paid, it's still considered to be a professional rank within from Patty, assuming that's the the uh, certification. Wow. I mean, I would think that you would check in with your dive master. How would you have asked your dive master if everybody's on board? It also makes you wonder whether or not she was a dive master as part of her qualifications or and just and not dive master for the charter or the boat. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's but but either way. Ah, <laughs> uh, and then we have uh, here's a follow up to if you you remember the SS Central America, uh, Treasure Hunter's attorney has been ordered to pay two hundred twenty five thousand as a sanction for hiding inventories of gold recovered from the shipwreck the SS Central America. <laughs> The SS Central America, which sank in 1857 hurricane, taking more than 400 people and approximately 200 million in gold and silver to a watery grave. Ship sat undisturbed on the seafloor for more than a mile deep until treasure hunter Tommy Thompson found it a high tech search expedition in a lake of the late 1980s. It was said to hold one of the largest reserves of lost undersea bullion in modern history. Court filings showed that after Thompson began pulling gold from the wreck, various Insurers came out of the woodwork and sought reimbursement for insurance payouts delivered some 130 years earlier in connection with the ship sinking. Wow, that's a, just an area of law that's just got to not be fun. That's why you keep your mouth shut, get the goal, and don't say a damn thing. Wow. Well, that's just me. I'm just oh, So, So you salvaged the wreck, and then you got the people who insured it coming back after you for picking it up? Shouldn't you be able to charge them for the cost of finding the wreck? Say if you spent several million dollars looking for the wreck, you know, you got to say, hey, that's the cost before you get penny one. Admiralty law is a little squirrely. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say I'd want to look into that, but I don't know if I do. I don't think I do. Thompson's attorneys battled through two admiralty trials and was eventually awarded the vast majority of the treasure in 1993. But the lawsuits kept coming to investors dispatch printing co and Donald Fanta filed yet another civil claim, alleging that they were left with nothing to show 
for their combined 1.25 million contribution to the recovery expedition. Oh, so the the first part is that the insurers were denied their claims, but he had partners who didn't think they got enough. The sixth court affirmed sanctions against the recovery's attorney, Richard Robel, last week for hampering the enforcement of the court orders in bad faith. Defendants turned over an inventory of gold sold to a California gold marketing group in 2000, but turned over no prior inventories. Through years of litigation, Robol repeatedly assured the court that recovery in Columbia Expedition turned over all inventories of gold recovered from the SS Central America, but when a receiver was appointed to liquidate the company's assets, it found 36 file cabinets containing records stored in a basement of duplex owned by Robol and partially leased to the defendants. Within the cabinets, the receiver found thousands of pages of treasure inventory never produced during litigation. The court ordered Robel to pay 225000 attorney's fees as a sanction for the time dispatch spent uncovering his fraud and pursuing its motion for sanctions. The Cincinnati-based appeals court affirmed the ruling. By refusing to notify the court the existence of inventories created prior to the California gold sale inventory and falsely claiming the California gold sale inventory was the only inventory in the defendant's possession, Robel hampered the enforcement of the 2006 consent order. This is according to Judge Danny Boggs said, writing for the three-judge panel. Panel found ample evidence that Robel knew of the existence of the undisclosed inventory, meaning his actions were indeed in bad faith. Even if we assume Robel did not know the specific facts of the inventories were located in a duplex during his misrepresentations, a claim which Robel has not convinced us of, Robel surely had enough knowledge about the inventory that when his Clients told him that California gold sale inventory was all they had. He could not have believed that statement. Hmm. Well, when the receiver found thousands of pages, makes you wonder. Yeah. But it, it's also kind of, yeah, I guess, yeah, I don't badmouth attorneys because they'll come after you. But this, this, this just seems odd and dirty on so many levels. I don't know. It seems like a good businessman with $200 million-ish uh huh. And you pay off your debtors because you might want to go after another one. So why would you not pay them? I mean, well, that, that's what I've kind of going back on this whole thing of this is is there there, there seems like there's something there, like bad bookkeeping, um, not wanting to pay tax, uh, some drug habit that or you know or or debts that we're not even aware of. You know, maybe these are the the unconnected investors and he had had lots of you know investors who would break legs if he did, they didn't get paid I'm, this is all speculation but it just makes you wonder why people would, would go this is it just greed is that all it is i don't know i, I just see that part that other parties wanted a piece of the pie too and including a band of bucks who had supposedly been granted the right to suck and treasure now what the heck you know where did that come from like the only said, other thing is like is, is maybe he made some bad contracts and then realized he gave up too much. You know, if you maybe he gave up more than 100 percent of the, the treasure. You know, if you do percentages like, hey, give me a million dollars to go find it and I'll give you 50 percent of what we find. And you do that with three people, you instantly get yourself in a point where you've got nothing. Oh, yeah. So that there, there's someday somebody will collate all this together, write a book and we'll know. That may be the only guy who makes money is the yeah. one who writes the book. Uh, and a lot of times you don't talk about negative stuff, but uh, 
I think this next one is is worth taking a peek at, and is all is in all of these in early results of a dive accident. We don't have all the information, but a local expert uh, has commented on a deadly scuba diving accident. Mercy Kids is Southwest Missouri. Sorry about that. Oh, I've I've got the same thing. I'm trying to figure out how to shut it off. I don't know if Surface Children's Hospital. <laughs> yeah, I hit it and then boom. Yeah, yeah it's all sorts of fun. Oh. Well, How can I? <laughs> I can't read it because of that. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it for you. <laughs> so uh, local scuba diving experts uh, were shedding light on a deadly accident in Baxter County, Arkansas. It happened over the weekend in Norfolk Lake where a group of divers were training. Baxter County Sheriff's Department said the group was around 100 feet below the surface when one of the trainees, Brian Malone of Jonesboro, Arkansas, became confused and started swimming towards the bottom. His instructor, Todd Reed, also of Jonesboro, went after Malone, and both men reached a depth of 177 feet. Malone died, and Reed had to be placed in a decompression chamber. You have to anticipate every possible Hang-up that a student may have, said White River Adventures Company dive instructor Lewis Chapman, and everyone is a little bit different. Chapman said without knowing all the details surrounding the incident in Baxter County, it's difficult to say exactly what happened. However, he believes that Malone suffered from something called nitrogen narcosis. The more pressure you're under, the deeper you go, the more reaction your body may have to high levels of nitrogen in your blood, and narcosis is similar to intoxication. Chapman says it isn't uncommon for recreational training classes to reach a depth, of 130 feet, but he says that's past the normal air becomes toxic. See, and I, I'm going to disagree with him. A recreational training class, it's not uncommon. I would say it's, it's absolutely uncommon. <clears throat> I could, because uh, if you look at many of the dive agencies, even though down to 130 is considered the recreational depth, they call like deep diving 60 to 80 feet. You're right. Down to 60 is normally around here what they consider okay mm-hmm. anything past that is deep diving and that's extra training yeah and what they don't say here is is was this an open water dive what type of training dive was being done well because if you're in an open water i believe the standards for that is that you should you, that the bottom can't be deeper than the uh, maximum recreational depth yeah, uh, in the chat room, they're saying that deep dive is uh, sixty to one hundred feet. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of times we, when when you see it in instructions, they try to keep it to the sixty foot end. A lot of that will tend on the, on the facility, but I'm guessing if they reached one hundred seventy seven feet, they were that was, oh come on, that was probably the depth of the uh, the bottom. Were they in a quarry? Mm, I don't Norfolk Lake. Yeah, open water classes max is sixty feet. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. Is that uh, is that there is a maximum, and there are mitigating circumstances as I've talked to some dive instructors as to where you're able to change that. You know, a lot of times it can be offset because uh, the reason I ask is I was doing some research uh, for the Boy Scouts. They had a facility and they wanted to do diving, uh, and they wanted to do some of the skill training, but the the, the actual lake had a little bit deeper. And we were able to get it technically approved, even though it wasn't a nice shiny pool. It was a, it was a, a small inland lake. Uh, 
But yeah, there's that there's something a little bit odd. Now, if you were doing a deep dive training, oh, these damn ads. Um, yeah, there's something we're, we're not we're not getting on this, but of course this is initial. Hopefully, we'll get some information we can follow up. What did the guy die of, by the way? Did they ever say? Um, no, they didn't say. Uh, so if you drowned down there, did you yeah, have the, the, come the out? chat room saying that there's no standard for max depth of a dive site has to be only the depth of the dive. Uh, so that might be what's going on here. Uh, so uh, assuming that this wasn't their, you know, initial open water dive, then uh, I'm just going to kill this window. I need to open it in a different browser. These autoplay ads are crazy. And then here we have a not another good day for divers. A scuba diver getting in uh, some nice huge finds. This one's from Seoul. <clears throat> I believe that's uh, South Korea, isn't it? Water sports are becoming increasingly prevalent in Korea and a number of recreational divers in their eyes, but stepping over the thin line between recreational activity and unlicensed marine extraction can result in huge fines. Growing number of divers have faced sanctions for extracting or catching marine life. On June 12, three men were apprehended one kilometer off the Soko coast while entering the port after catching 110 specimens of marine life. The day before, another man was arrested by the Coast Guard on charges of violating marine resource management laws. According to the Coast Guard, the 12 fatal scuba diving accidents that have taken place in the last two years, four have occurred while divers were capturing sea life. Such accidents often take place when divers are unaware of the lack of oxygen and get trapped by abandoned fishing nets. Sometimes disputes between divers and those who depend on fishing for their livelihoods. Last month in the... Jeju Island, 28 members of the scuba diving dive business filed a lawsuit against the local female divers claiming they interfered with their training session, which had been given official authorization by local government. The female divers refuted the acquisition, saying the divers were illegally capturing sea life. Oh, okay. I see what's going on. Kind of like what we had going on in Hawaii, where you had the guys who were capturing marine mm-hmm. life, then you had the people who didn't like it fighting them. I wonder why they made a big deal about it being f- female. I don't Hen- know. Uh, the Henyo. So I don't know if that's just a, the name of the group or uh, just maybe something that got lost in translation. Surprisingly, catching clams or fish with bare hands while to beach is not illegal. And they're probably because they don't think you're going to be able to get much. Uh, using tools such as cast nets, spoon nets, hose to catch marine life is also legal, including pole and line fishing, all with the purpose of permitting Marine life captured to a certain degree as long as attentions are recreational and experimental. I was curious about the comment about the Coast Guard mm-hmm. referencing 12 fatal scuba diving accidents have taken place in the past few years. Four occurred while divers were capturing sea life. Such accidents often take place when divers are unaware of a lack of oxygen or get trapped by abandoned fishing nets. Well, see, I'm, when they say lack of oxygen, they must mean run out of air. Right. They're not looking at their gauges. Yeah. And a lot of times it's training. But Korea is a is a fairly <clears throat> modern country. So as long as divers are from that country and they're getting training, uh, it shouldn't be an issue. But I mean, we run the same thing. You have uh, lobster season. We we've we've covered a lot of those cases. Yeah. Well, you know what ten million won is, don't you? About a dollar. No. <laughs> no. Uh, Seventeen. It was a uh, one thousand one hundred seventy-two Korean. Uh-huh. One is a dollar. So twenty million divided by a thousand one hundred and seventy-two will give you the dollar amount. 
Uh, you gotta do math. It's, it's almost midnight. I don't, I'm not doing math at this point. Uh, let me see. Let me pull out the calculator, see what that works out to be. So you said, uh, how, what was, what was the fine? It said, what, 20 million? 20 million. So 20. So I'll just tell you 20 million divided by 1,172. So that comes out to $17,064. Doesn't sound as bad that way, does it? <laughs> Well, that's still a lot. That's a serious amount of money. Well, and, when when we were diving or listening tonight, they had an article on a guy who just lost his boat, all his fishing tackle, his car, and his truck for overfishing at some lake here in the States. He had uh, something like 38 huge bass and 41, um, oh, what the hell is fish? Another type of fish, which was way over the limit. Mm-hmm. So they fined him very heavily and then took his car, truck, boat, all his fishing gear. And, and the moral of the story is be a really poor guy with nothing worth taking. And yeah. <laughs> be in a rowboat. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of discussions I've seen recently on the seizure laws that they're really not just because they – you can go to certain extremes, and, and we get it in the United States not only for what they call poaching or or overfishing, but they also do it for drug offenses. Well, they're talking about the ones, and I'm, I'm totally with these people, that if you're not charged with the crime, then give me my stuff back, and they're not doing that. Oh, I see. So say they, they, they seize everything because you were caught with it, but they never actually get around to charging you. Or you are not found not guilty, and you can't get your gear back. Now that's totally wrong. That is completely wrong, because yeah. that's a, that's a violation of due process. I think so too. And I, they they're getting away from it because so many people are, are bitching about it, which they should be. Yeah. Now give me due process. Well, and it's another case of this is the political portion of the show, but uh, the reason they've been able to get away with it is is it was largely enforced on the drug cases. And the people didn't have you couldn't couldn't afford defenders. You know they usually have other issues going on, but you have enough people fight it because you because I'm sure what's going on is that they're seizing all this stuff, throwing it in a warehouse, and then they do their once a year auction where they auction it off. And since you know because if you're is seized is seized items evidence because they may have all the evidence they need with just because you happen to be in the car when they caught you doesn't mean that's evidence of the case. So they may not be keeping that evidence. Usually they tag evidence and it's got, you know, an expire date past when the court case is. Uh, hmm. I'll have to ask some of my current law enforcement contacts with the how that's going. Yeah, and the chat room saying the same thing we are. If, you, if you're not charged with a crime, you uh, shouldn't have your stuff seized. Absolutely. Or it should be returned. Yeah. And then we have a case of, uh, and I think we've covered this one as well, but it's been a while ago, a 50-year-old observation. And when they say observation, I mean that the observation has been 50 years in the process, leads to the most successful seagrass restoration in the world. Jeff Bastien uh, noted seagrass disappearing from the harbors in Albany, where 50 years ago he would have never predicted the observation would lead to the most successful seagrass restoration in the world. He knows decline of, in the distribution and health of uh, in Latin names for seagrass, known as a ribbon weed, 
an oyster in Princess Royal Harbors in the late 1970s. Yeah, people do not need to see me. And you know the name's bad when they start abbreviating the Latin. Uh, seagrass is vital to healthy marine, marine ecosystems, provides food and habitat, improves water clarity, reduces coastal erosion by stabilizing sediments, filter nutrients, oxygenates water, and absorbs carbon by uh, bioxide, uh, carbon dioxide. Mr. Bastian was determined to document its disappearance, so he started self-funding monitoring programs in both harbors in 1981. Uh, the GPS technology was not being used widely or economically, so he spent countless hours scuba diving both harbors to record changes in seagrass species and densities at different depths by hand. He also used aerial photography. In 1988, his monitoring showed substantial seagrass losses of 80% from Oyster Harbor and 90% from Princess, Princess Royal Harbor. Oyster Harbor was overloaded with agricultural nutrients from surrounding farmland while Princess Royal Harbor had high levels of industrial waste and sewage. His research prompted the Albany Harbor's environmental study, a report of Environmental Protection Authority in 1988-1989. The study found if agriculture and industrial pollutants loads continued, most remaining seagrass would be lost from Princess Royal Harbor within five years and Oyster Harbor within ten years. Mr. Bashan began seagrass, seagrass transplants trials in 1994 and in spite of prevailing views that degraded 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 no degraded seagrass meadows could not be rehabilitated he his efforts painstakingly relocated hundreds of plants across 2.6 hectares hectic yeah hectares yeah that's about 2.5 acres per hectare yeah so that's that's a good amount that's that's about the the property i'm sitting on right here um, throughout the 1990s disproved this theory with a 97% survival rate making his work the most successful seagrass restoration project in the world. Received international recognition and accolades last month he was awarded the Great Southern Development Commission Medal which celebrates national resource management best practices and includes a $12,000 grant. The humble 58-year-old says he felt honored and doesn't expect awards for doing what he loves it's very humbling, he says. We do what we love for the environment. It's a, it's stimulating to try and understand the natural process in the oceans. It's a great office. He plans to use the grant to finish documenting seagrass neutral regrowth and restora- restorative efforts on the harbors. They're transplanting it, and they're saying it's working really well, but have they reduced the pollutants going into the water? That would seem the root cause. Yeah, because if you just put it out there and then things poison it. I guess it depends on what the poison was, a buildup of toxins in the plant, or is the toxins like immediate killing them? Well, it said high levels of industrial waste and sewage. So I'm assuming. I don't know how it's going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, It's, it, they, they have to change it because you just can't keep replanting. And so maybe he had a good luck and he did it between years and yeah, they didn't have the outflows, but. But then you also wonder, I mean, maybe that's why people said it wouldn't work. Because we know things that work above ground, why wouldn't they work above ground? Above water, why wouldn't they work below water? I mean, if I've got a field and it is destroyed or polluted, you can, in some cases, replant that. Then just last week we were saying, what are they going to do with these lionfish? Why don't they make a commercial market? 
And guess what they are? Whole Foods is hoping that they can create a market for people to eat the invasive lionfish. They said since nature isn't solving the problem, they're hoping that by uh, by creating a demand where people eat it, that will create the economic system whereby lionfish will be harvested in great numbers. Lionfish have proven they have no predators to keep them in check in Florida waters. They're destroying a delicate ecosystem of coral reefs. Whole Foods started carrying the fish in Florida locations in April, said David Ventura, the chain seafood coordinator state. He said the goal is to offer the fish year-round at upscale grocers, 26 Florida locations, create demand to discourage the fishing to encourage the fishing industry to keep killing them by thousands of pounds. Sales have been solid, Ventura said Thursday. The company has been blown away by positive customer feedback. The publicity is very happy. We are selling it. Oh, the publicity. The public. I think that calls for another drink. Uh, The reason they are so happy is because they are aware of what the lionfish is doing. Just before noon on Thursday, Whole Foods and Endale Mayberry Highway received 50-pound delivery of the fish. They sat stacked on top of each other in a box of crushed ice. The seafood department carefully unloaded each fish into a metal display case filled with ice, let out a gasp when he saw one of the big guys. The Whole Foods location started selling the lionfish two weeks ago, said uh, Mario Torres, who helped manage the Tampa store. As word spread about the stock of lionfish, it's been hard to keep up with demand. He's had to turn away at least four people Wednesday night who came in after dinner time in search of lionfish. They're getting a steady, <clears throat> they're heading to the store solely for the lionfish. They don't say how much lionfish is going for. Yes, it is. Fish is uh, $9.99 a pound. Holy. Now, that, whoa. I fish in myself. $9 a pound at Mac Week. It's on sale once a month for $8.99 a pound. Wow, $9.99 a pound. I'm assuming. Now, I, I'm not a Whole food shopper. We've got one in South Bend, but I, I mean, is, are they, that seems expensive. Yeah. I w- but remember, we talked about this last week that. Yeah. Part of the problem would be how do you process it because you've got a poisonous fish, you've got to clean it, mm-hmm. fillet it. That is more human hands-on, so yeah. more money to produce that pound of fish. Well, I guess if you, but okay, so nine ninety-nine a pound, right? N- knowing what I know about economics, the guy who fished it probably got a buck twenty-five a pound. But if they're that prevalent and that uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're spearfishing. You could make pretty good money. Yeah, I think I think you could, huh? Well, it, I mean, and there is at least they're giving an outlet. So, you know, hats off to Whole Foods for giving them an outlet. And if there's demand there, it's just going to increase, and they'll come up with some sort of uh, medium. A well, good I'm day gonna... is two hundred. A bad day is twenty pounds. A good day is two hundred pounds. Right. I was looking at the other little part though. Um, she said the lionfish display caught Tonto's eye. She could see the eye scales and spikes, so it didn't look ready to eat, which means then you still got to prepare it your way. That's even better. You don't, even, you don't have any real processing, right? You just throw it on ice and you let the, you know, uh, uh, cook at your own risk. She can't cook fish after laying the best way to prepare lionfish is by sautéing in a pan with lemon butter and light seasoning. She thought maybe it was worth experimenting with. The staff said it wouldn't leave a fishy smell in her kitchen. She cut off the spikes, removed the spines, and scraped off the scales, walked out with two small and tidy fillets. 
Oh, somebody. No, she didn't. Somebody else must have. Is that the, this whole, did Whole Foods flay it for? Try to get, gotta go back and see who, whose name belongs to who. We need to talk to David and see if he's yeah. uh, catching any of those and what he does with them. Yeah, because it was the department manager who who went and cleaned it. So I don't know if that was just a service. And then here they give you the instructions. Here's how you prepare lionfish. Whole Foods will fillet the fish for you so you don't have to deal with the venomous spines yourself. So they must keep them whole until you want to buy them, and then they take time. And, and that's why it's $9 a pound or $10 a you pound. You know, as, as a service, a fresh fillet, I think that's probably reasonable then. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking mass-produced factory. You've got something in, so nine dollars. If you've got somebody in the department's got to take time and do it because they got to adjust for demand, and you know the people want other cuts of meat from that department. So you just can't you can't have people doing nothing for that often. Uh, they recommend that you season it with lemon butter, salt, and pepper to taste. Place fillets in a medium to hot pan. Cook. Each side for a few minutes until you see the fish turn white into a soft, flaky texture. You could use that for about any fish. Yeah. Hmm. Making me hungry for it. I had some seafood today for lunch, so just made me want some more. But I have not seen lionfish in any of the menus up here. Oh, any of the people in the uh, chat room had lionfish? Yeah, let us know if you've had, you've had anything. <laughs> I, I've heard the same thing, Vanessa. She says anything at Whole Foods is expensive and uh, you're paying a little bit more. Part of it's the prestige of the of the restaurant and uh, just the organic nature that they they espouse that raises a little price. And if that's important to you, then you know maybe that's something you've got to pay for. Now, have you had an opportunity to dive this next wreck? Have the, I had the opportunity? Yeah, the Andrea Doria. I would dive it. I have not taking it upon myself to pay the money to the long <laughs> trip out there to do any of that. Yeah. And I know when you get on it, I have some other audio starting up on me. I've got the same thing here. This is annoying. Oh, yeah, okay. See, now it's a game of, this is like a game of mugwump. You ever heard of that? Not exactly. Maybe some people in the chat room or uh, listening to podcasts know, but mugwump was an arcade game. That was actually a physical game. And what you had was this little stick and there's a padded mallet on the end. And these little fiberglass prairie dogs would pop up and you'd have to hit them as they popped up. And the game was called Mugwump. And that's what it feels like with all these video ads now. You know, as long as you have that, that uh, you're looking at a page reading anything, they will randomly fire so I think I think it's giving me an idea for a new app, a whack-a-mole. Why did I say mugwump? I think you're right. <laughs> whack-a-mole. Mugwump. What's mugwump? Maybe that was another game that was a knockoff of it. So new footage is showing that the Andrea Doria shipwreck is starting to break down. Uh, it sank in July 25, 1956, off the coast of Nantucket. It was a Swedish cruise liner, the MS Stockholm. Uh, that struck the Italian liner Andrea Doria, sending the ship to the depths. For decades, a wreckage has been fodder for divers who dubbed it the Everest of shipwrecks. Last week, a company, OceanGate, sent a manned submersible down to map the wreck using sonar to assess the condition of the remains. The team wants to create a 3D model of the 697-foot shipwreck to help them understand the wreck's decay over time. 
Steel ships and aluminum superstructures like the Andrea Doria and so many wrecks from World War II are very common, potentially polluting. So a lot about their decay process is not well understood. Since scientists captured the last image of the wreck two years ago, there have been drastic changes. A large section of the bow has crumbled and entire superstructures collapsed. And isn't that the way with all wrecks? They decay at a somewhat constant rate, but you can have a storm, which can cause it to break down. Or at that moment in time when that critical infrastructure breaks down, then it collapses. And we've seen that in a lot of the wrecks, like you know the Ironsides we talked about. It may look like a full wreck, but when that part that holds the upper decks on collapses, then you see something visibly different rather rapidly. You know, over a short period of time, a couple of years, that wreck was a rubble wreck now. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've seen that in other wrecks, which are much older than this. So I'm not surprised. Uh, the thing is that it's such a deep wreck. Uh, you know, Wait till you see the new video on it. Oh, I haven't seen it. Is there a video on here? No, no, there is not. Um, Kevin was down on it last week, uh, Sunday. Did a solo on it. Oh, oh you're talking, we jumped to the iron sides. You said, so he was on the iron sides? Iron sides, right. And uh, visibility, you can almost see one end to the other. Oh, I like it. I, I, got I, some good audio, uh, some good video, he said. Yeah, I dove that once where I could see that that far. And what's interesting is every time I dive it, it's like I've never dove it before. I just see things that I didn't realize they were the way that they are. And part of it is because we're breathing air. So I'm, you know, we're we're not doing mixed gas, and it's a it's a deep de- it's a deep dive. It's 125 feet, and I always get just a little bit narked on it. I that's get that why, tunnel vision. That's why you want to use uh, some nitrox because I like nitrox on that one. On the iron side, you use nitrox. Yes, I do. So what mix gets you an MOD of 125? I guess I'd have to look at the chart. When you say 120, it depends on what you want. 1.2 to 1.6 is what a lot of people use. Mm-hmm. And I'll use 38 mix, and I use the air table. I'm just using it for a protection factor for me. So again, make sure you consult your tables before you do a dive, and have a bailout. Certainly on that dive, that's a that's a deep one. And Kevin has learned that firsthand. A lot of guys have learned that firsthand. And that seems to be one of the wrecks that you discovered on too. Boy, that or you'll have an auto inflate at 130 feet. Ooh. That makes your day really interesting. Wow. That, that's uh, almost I've a voluntary trip to the chamber. Yeah. Now, when they did that auto-inflate, how did they – did they actually go to the chamber or were they – did they go down and recompress? Yeah. Yeah, which is not like a an approved rock. method. Well, it scared the hell out of me. It's like, all right, I saw you come up. Why did you go back down? And I wasn't dressed to go down to find out where he was at. Mm-hmm. He did have stage bottles. So he went back down, and he was smart enough to exhale on the way up. Yeah. Like a freaking Polaris missile coming out of the water. That's a scary situation. Then when we got him on board, he said he felt good, but we put him on O2 for two hours. Yeah, yeah. And came back into the dock just in case. Yeah, come back in the dock. What's the closest chamber up there? Is that still Kalamazoo? Probably. I mean, there's some commercial units, but you'd be... Well, you're never going to get a hold of anybody in the amount of time you need them. It's better just to be heading to the other chamber. Yeah. And you do doing a real low flight, you can do it pretty quickly. And how about Dive Heart? Need a motorcycle? Dive Heart's holding a classic drawing for a Corey Ness Victory motorcycle. 
That's valued at $18,000. Proceeds from the raffle of tickets will support Dive Heart's mission for building confidence and self-esteem for children, adults, and veterans with disability through scuba diving. The Corey Ness Victory Motorcycle was donated by Dive Heart friend and supporter Dean Hempel. We are grateful for this generous donation, said Jim Elliott, founder and president of Dive Heart. Our friends continue to find wonderful and unique ways to support us. This motorcycle is beautiful. Someone is going to be very excited at the conclusion of this drawing, and our divers with disability will ultimately benefit. The motorcycle is on display at American Heritage Motorcycle Crossroads, 250 Skokie Valley Highland Park. The drawing will be at the Victory Motorcycle Rally in Townsend, Tennessee, on July 17th. The winner will not need to be present. Drawing tickets are available for $20 each or 6 for 100 Dive Heart is a 503C, I said a 501C3 organization that supports facilities of adaptive diving programs around the world for children, adults, and veterans with disability through scuba diving. Tickets can be purchased online at diveheart.networkforgood.com. And then it's a much longer URL, so hopefully if you go to that, you can find it. I'm sure that the diveheart.org website will also have a links there. Um, and, and I've said it a few times that we really need to have Jim Elliott back on to give uh, us an update on how Dive Heart is doing with their mission. But this is great, somebody donating this motorcycle. Nice bike. Yeah, if you like a motorcycle. I feel much more confident diving than I would than that bike, though. Yeah. Every, that's I keep telling my son. My kids are in the driving age. My daughter's got her license, and my son is starting driver's ed here in a couple of weeks. And uh, the the draw of motorcycles is attractive to him. And I say, anybody I know who's been riding long enough has all had to dump their bike. So it's not a matter of if it's when you're going to have to lose it. And the chat room is saying definitely worth the $20 donation. Oh, what's this audio now? You know about the Queens College student? Yeah, I don't have any idea. A Queens College student helps tackle dyslexia with scuba diving. He's taken on a, on a challenge and taken up scuba diving to conquer his dyslexia, uh, which I've worked with people with dyslexia before. It's it's actually more common than you would think. And the person I worked with was actually a typesetter. Uh, her job was to typeset. And she was an adult when she was diagnosed. She'd had it all her life and just couldn't understand why things were tougher for her. Um, uh, Nathan's hobby helped them get kick-started in reading and also helped him achieve a master scuba diver rating. Did Can you hear me, Mac? Yes. Why is it Skype is saying we have no microphone detected? Well, that's odd that you can hear me. Oh, I hear you good. <laughs> oh, the, the follow-up in our last article, uh, the chat room was proving my point, which I'll have to bug my kids about. You said he dumped one bike to prevent going over the hood of the car. And that's usually the case. It's usually not the motorcycle rider's fault when they dump a bike. It's the... <laughs> It's the lesser of two evils. You can either run into the car that pulled out and didn't see you, or you can dump the bike. Uh, But Nathan Harrison's hobby not only helped him kickstart his reading, but also helped him achieve master scuba diver rating. His father said Nathan tried a taster session at Queens and loved it. We couldn't get him to read, but he knew he had to read the background information that started him off. He then joined Scuba Scenes Club and hasn't looked back. Ah, so I guess, so it's a case of he was dyslexic and reading was such a chore that this gave him a reason to read. It's called incentive. Yeah, I, I, that's great. 
any incentive. I was hoping that it was something that was inherent in scuba diving that helped. But the motivation, which is telling you something about diving. If you're not a diver and you're listening to this podcast, this is, you know, if, if this guy, if this kid can go and do it, you can too. We're delighted for him. He has worked so hard. Excellent. And this next one, I, it just struck me as a little odd. And I've reread it a few times, and maybe I'm just missing the essence of it. But it's a new Guinness Book of World Record attempt. And it's saying that these two Alabama-born divers with ties to Auburn University are planning on setting the record this summer for the oldest married couple to scuba dive. Lucy Bucknam Williams, 67, and Ernest H. Burt Williams, 69, would like to... uh, go for the record. The retired marine biologist with extensive underwater experience. According to the information promoting the event, both were born in Alabama. Um, they go on and provide some other things. They went to work for the variety of educational institutions, particularly the University of Puerto Rico at uh, Mayagas. Their attempt is planned for July 28th off the southwest coast of Puerto Rico and will have involve an extensive support team. Guinness World Record site is categorized the oldest married scuba dive, but doesn't appear to identify the current record holder. The record for the oldest male diver is 93. The site doesn't appear to list the oldest female diver. So this does not even seem possible that that's a real record. Oldest married couple to scuba dive, 67, 69. That does not... Stand alone, but that doesn't seem... No, it, it, our club, don't we have married couples who dive? I mean, that doesn't... That, yes. that to me doesn't seem that old. It just seems like nobody thought to tell Guinness about it. You know, when you start, if you said if you had two people and they were in their 80s diving, you know, I may believe that, but in their 60s. Ken and Lucy would almost qualify for that. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm, I didn't want to throw anybody under the bus. You know, people may think they're much younger, but uh, the Mud Club does have a few experienced divers. Yeah, so I think the Mud Club. Yeah, maybe we need to bug Ken on Tuesday. Say, hey, because does Lucy dive? Yeah, she's qualified, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Hmm. But sometimes it's just who would have thought? Who would have thought that's a, just being the oldest to dive? And I bet you this is one of those, if they get this, that very rapidly that edges up because people are going to hear about it and go, wait, we're diving and I'm older than that. I can beat that. Yeah. But I'm not going to hold it against them. I mean, if nobody's claimed it, go and claim it. Sure. Are they doing it as a fundraiser? Doesn't Doesn't say. Hmm. But they, these are not your, uh, your everyday tip. divers either. Uh, Together, they've made more than six thousand dives all over the world. I mean, there seems to be a, there could be a record in that. Just the most dives together as a couple, as a married couple. I mean, I would believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good for them. How about this? For uh, we sometimes make fun of uh, what people find in the bottles under the ocean, but. Uh, this is something that came off an 18th century shipwreck in Australia. I like the bottle. Did they show the bottle? In the- oh, yes. Light and fresh, world's oldest beer brewed from shipwreck bottle. Yeah, when I first... 20-year-old. Yeah. And what I didn't realize, and maybe this is just something in modern life, that things keep changing, kind of like how corn today probably is different than corn 220 years ago. Uh, the same is going on with beer. Uh, museum announced this week it re- recovered live yeast from the 220-year-old bottle of beer, making it possibly the oldest surviving yeast in existence. The bottle is thought to be a sort of chemical time capsule capable of offering researchers 
a taste of the way people used to drink. Now, wouldn't all modern yeast be driven from an older yeast? Uh, I have no clue on that. Aspect. There is. Uh, I was watching something on sourdough bread, and there was a uh, a place in San Francisco that had this fireproof cooler. And I guess, and I'm, I'm and I apologize if I kind of slaughter this, but to make sourdough bread, you take a donor from an old piece of bread. Like you keep growing this yeast constantly and you pull off it. And it was over 150 years old, the the dough that they were pulling the yeast off of. So I can't believe that there aren't examples throughout the world of yeast that's this old. But I guess if you don't look for it, you don't find it. So this is a, this is a good example. So they took the yeast. Uh, they worked with their searchers to find a way to extend the yeast, and they've actually made beer from that yeast. Uh, so they're, what they're doing is they're saying that by following recipes from that time period, using this yeast, you're going to get a better sample of what it probably tasted like. They said they're seeking funding uh, for the museum to study the yeast further, explore to possibly recreating other historic brews. Possibly the wreck has also given us the world's only pre-industrial revolution brewing yeast. The bottle was recovered from a wreck of Sydney Cove, a small trading ship that sank off the coast of Australia in 1797 with a cargo holds full of good from uh, Calcutta. Divers excavated shipwreck from 91 to 94 and recovered a bottle of beer along with many other well-preserved trade goods, including tobacco, ink, textiles, wines, and spirits. The museum says the shipwreck is well known for its range of preserved fragile organic materials, which rarely survive in other century-old wreck. Red wine recovered from the wreck could also have insights into microorganisms that were present in people's diets 220 years ago, according to the release. Why did it take this long for them to talk about something they did 1994? Well, that's when they excavated the wreck, so maybe they're just now getting to the working on all these details. 25 years? Yeah. Maybe the guy didn't like beer. <laughs> maybe it took him this long to get funding. <laughs> oh, I like the, the photo. I, I agree with you. Those are some nice photos. Nice photos. It's got to be shallow, too. I, I bet you it was. I see a dredge in the back. See the back behind the bottle? See mm-hmm. that dredge behind it? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look very deep. Oh, remind me after the show, uh, somebody was asking about a dredge. So after the show, I got to ask you a question. Klein Engineering, get their catalog. (laughs) Very, very nice. Okay, I think. uh, Did I preempt your question? (laughs) No, no, that was not the question. But uh, it could be the answer, though. Dredge is to be added to a reef off Ocean City. Let's see if we can open this link without some audio or video autoplaying. In this case, they're sinking a dredge. They're just not adding it? <laughs> adding not sounds like a dredge. <laughs> mathematics. State officials plan to sink a dredge a few miles off the coast of southern, o- southern Ocean City this week to add a new portion of the artificial reef for marine life and local anglers. As part of New Jersey's artificial reef program, the New Jersey Division of Fish and Wildlife, the Division of the State Department of Environmental Protection, will sink what they describe as an inland dredge from the state's Ocean City Reef, which sits at three and a half miles offshore. The vessel is prepared for sinking in Norfolk, Virginia, which add a roughly an 80-foot by 20-foot area to the reef there, according to the program coordinator, Hugh Carberry. Carberry said the dreef, the, the dreef, 
The dredges set to be sank Thursday, barring delays, which would be today. Uh, since the program started in 1984, the state has assembled 15 reefs, reefs, 13 in federal water, 2 in state water. The program was established to attract marine life and people who use the spot for fishing and scuba diving. The reef houses about 150 marine species through the year, including black sea bass, cod, summer flounder, paddock, lobster, stone crab, blue mussels, barnacles. Carberry said they attract sea creatures higher in the food chain, such as bluefin or bluefish tuna, shortfin, mako sharks. Outside the ships that have wrecked over the years in a German submarine sunk during World War II off Point Pleasant and discovered in 1991, it's basically a desert of sand out there. Reefs are a great way to increase habitat. We've done studies that show if you put structures on the floor, it's 600 times more productive than natural sandy seafloor. Now, I absolutely believe that by what I've seen on our shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. He said the dredge, which used, which was used to dredge harbors and other inland waters, will serve as the seventh sunken vessel of the Ocean City Reef in the first since 2006. It will also be the first dredge added to one of the state's reefs. The tugboat will be placed in Atlantic City Reef on the same trip. About 200 vessels have been added to artificial reefs state statewide. They are just making Michigan look like we are lazy. Actually, they're just polluting the oceans, all right? <laughs> That's what some some would say. But economically, we, we need to get our act together in Michigan and create this. We've already got a dive wonderland, but it's hard to get people excited about our old wooden shipwrecks, especially on our side of the state when they're breaking down like they are. Yeah. It's it. You have to have a little imagination to understand shipwreck design to be able to see the collection of wood boards and realize how that corresponds to the shipwreck. But if you were able to sink a large vessel, get people there, then you could encourage them to come back to dive some of the more historic wrecks. So I think we really need to step it up to get the same thing going on here in Michigan. Because here the state's doing it. The state's picking up the tab. Oh, yeah. And they're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. They think there's an economic benefit to it. That's why they're funding it. And I would say the economic benefit would be just as valid in Michigan. So good for them. And I don't know if this is necessarily where I would naturally think there would be gold, but people are finding gold in a shipwreck that is actually in the desert. Sounds like a Clive Custler yep. novel. So miners find... And be prepared for an annoying ad to play. 500-year-old shipwreck filled with gold in the Nambian Desert. The wreckage of a 500-year-old Portuguese ship filled with gold coins has been unearthed by miners in the Nambian Desert. The hall was discovered by diggers from a diamond company, which we all know is De Beers. It's believed to be worth upwards of 9 million pounds. Archaeologists confirm the wreckage is that of bomb. Is that Jesus or Bomb Jesus? <laughs> I will let you say whatever. <laughs> yeah. I probably insulted somebody by saying that. The ship will set sail from Lisbon. Well, uh, if we were 700 years ago, the ship which set sail from Lisbon in 1533 and disappeared with its entire crew on board near the Nimbian diamond mining town of Ojinmund on the way to India. The miners alerted geological experts and the ship was discovered in the pit of a drained lagoon. 
and the gold was found six days in the excavation process along with bones and navigational tools. Professor Timothy Insall from Manchester University, who specialized in African archaeology, told the independent that other items could include pottery that would prove more valuable than the gold coins. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> You've got something that's old and it's gold and it's a coin. You can't tell me that pottery shard is going to be more valuable. It's a very significant find, particularly in supporting items like religious artifacts and clothing, which give us fascinating insight to what's very important in the history Portuguese sailors at the cusp of opening the known world around 1533, but historic sources have been limited in describing everyday life. The mixture of discoveries is particularly impressive, and the bones give archaeologists an idea of sailors' typical diet, for example. While it is, of course, the gold that grabs the headlines, the other items the ship are potentially even more exciting going forward. So it all depends on how you want to value it, but... I don't think you're going to be able to sell a collector, you know, a pot shard for more than the gold. Dr. Dieter Noli from Southern Africa Institute of Marine Archaeology Research was called and examined the site and quickly realized that the bomb Jesus wreck was unique. That's got to be bomb, Jesus. I'm just going to say that. He told Fox News, I've been preaching to them, the miners, for a dozen years that one day they would find a shipwreck and let me know when they do. Why would you assume... I mean, I guess other than it's an old port that they're dredging out because uh, we know that the vessels would sink for a variety of reasons or be sunk. Uh, Dr. Noli believes the ship went down due to a combination of excess cargo and bad weather, although the true reason, reason remains unknown. The wreck was first discovered by a geologist in April 2008, and experts are now only realizing its hidden treasures. He confirmed the Nambian government received the gold haul as the right was waived by Portugal which that's got to be a story in itself. Dr. Noli continued, it's a normal procedure when the ship is found on the beach. The only exception is the ship of the state. The Portuguese government was very generous in waiving that right, allowing Nambia, Nambia to keep the lot. Several shipwrecks have been discovered in the outskirts of the desert in recent years, the oldest previously being the shell of the Visingen, which was cast ashore in 1747. Still be awesome to see that. I'd like to see the inventory. Now, he's got an astrolab in the in the photo. Is that one from the shipwreck that he found, or is he just showing one off while he's out there? It, it really didn't say, and uh, it's different than the Mariner's astrolab. Right, yeah, or at least the ones that we're familiar with, which are more almost like a protractor-looking item than this one. Huh. Well, they, they called it the, wherever it went, let me look here again. Now, demonstrating the astrolab, which is a, shore-type vessel or shore-type device as opposed to the Mariner, the Mariner Astrolab. Ah, okay. So he must have been, sometimes they take these pictures out of context, so it's hard to piece them together in these articles. But excellent find. Good for them. Oh, absolutely. And gold. Heck, you can't beat that. Well, they're older than us, you figure. 500 years, we weren't even here. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody even thought about looking for us at that point in time. Well, that does it for Scuba the News, but we do have a couple videos. So when we do get those up on the website, you can take a peek. I just wonder, the, the crabs are, the picture is, is awesome. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to fall on the bottom because I think they'd pick your bones. <laughs> you, you wonder. Hundreds are, do, of thousands of giant spider crabs. Yeah. And, and do you know why they're there in that video? 
They I are, think they, they're in migration or something, aren't well, they? Well, they're molting. So what happens when they molt is they shed their shells. Oh, and they get angry and they can just attack anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess. They're jealous of you. Uh, no, what's happening is that they're molting, and by being congregated in numbers, any predators are limited in the number they can eat. So it lets the ones who don't get eaten survive uh, because they're vulnerable. With the, with the hard shells off, then they're just kind of nice and chewy. And underneath, they've got their new forming shell, which hasn't solidified yet. So in this molting process, they congregate. And well, I, this, I want some of those because I like crab legs. Yes. Inch crab legs sound really, really good. <laughs> yes. And, and heck, it should, that could be a, a premium product. Hey, Whole Foods, where are you? You know, add that to your line fish. Uh, but that does look like if you fell in the bottom there, it would be an Indiana Jones movie where you would, uh, it'd be like piranha. Well, I kept swimming in a straight line for five minutes and saw so thousands and thousands. How many, how many did you take home for supper? Come on. They didn't say, but an excellent video. And this is just the things that you have a chance of seeing when you go and do some scuba diving. Or, and unfortunately, this next article, the article was written by somebody who spent almost no time uh, in effort in getting facts right. Uh, the title is says, Scuba Diver Speared by Swordfish Terrifying Video, which is clickbait if I've ever heard it. Uh, it was an AOL, and I'm, I'm thinking it's a fairly current. But when you watch the viewer, the first thing that comes to mind, this is not a scuba diver. It's a hard hat diver. Yeah, looking at the depth, that's your first clue. Yeah. And what happened is for some reason this swordfish is swimming, and he gets entangled in the commercial diver's gear. And you got to give one heck of a lot of respect to this hard hat diver because it didn't look like he panicked in one at, at all. It was just like, well, something's different, and we're going to go to our plan, and I'm going to get back on the cage and ride to the surface. And that's what he does. But that, that fish, I don't – did they say? They say what happened to the to the fish? Didn't say. Yeah. And they say, that, like as the article's written, it says, a diver is forced to climb back up his rope towards the boat. No, he's going he, – they lowered him into uh, – this is a, what, a saturation dive most likely, and they've got a dive – cage that they transport him down to the bottom yeah, diving bell diving bell so that's what he's doing is he's standing on that you know he can climb back onto it and they would have raised him to the surface it's it's cropped but they've had almost two million views as, as of when we're recording this they said he shot with a spear gun now this is what the guy who got killed well, this is a different guy oh this is a different one right this guy went in oh. shot it with a spear gun but it impaled him in the chest oh okay and they pulled him in, and he he died. But this is a little different. They're just saying it's not unusual for somebody to get stuck by a by one of those guys. Oh, by the swordfish. Yeah. Oh, and that's why they got a sword. Yeah, that's why and you bring a gun to a sword fight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you could do that. Another bang stick. A little bit. Another Indiana Jones moment. Uh, post the link. Let me see. Did I not give him that link? Here. Sorry that if you're in the chat room, I'm usually. Well, I don't say I'm usually pretty good. I'm sometimes pretty good about pacing them in there. So here we go. Sorry about that, Mark. Uh, but that was a nice video. And let me paste the other one in if I didn't give you guys that one either. The crabs. And this looks like the tasty crabs version. <laughs> that's the only time you don't mind having crabs, huh? Yes, exactly. Any crabs that's appropriate with butter works. Well, that 
does it for Scuba the News. Um, now, I have to say, Mac, I did read the Mud Club <laughs> newsletter this month. I'm, it, I'm, I'm usually bad. They're, like I open it up and then I immediately get distracted by something else. But I thought this one was exceptionally good. And let me see if I can find it again. Because you had one section in there that I think that we need to share with with other people. Well, it came up because at last meeting, our president said, okay, anybody got any comment on the contents of the newsletter? And it's like, duh. So our comment was, is anybody reading that stuff? <laughs> and I had several people call me, or when I did this month's, email me back and said, I read it, I read it. <laughs> she, so she shamed us into reading it. And it's always good. I mean, it's not bad. It's Sometimes I just think we get a little bit numb. It's a good uh, reminder and... And that's what we need to do. I don't care what kind of experience you have. That's like every time we dive and go out to eat, I always like to do a round robin and say, okay, what did you learn this time? Either mm-hmm. good or bad or so you can learn. You know, what did you do good? What did you not do good this time? Yeah. And if you want to follow along when we talk about the Mud Club, it is mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, the menu, which is now a little bit jacked up that we're going to fix, is uh, has the newsletter section into it. And you can get to all the newsletters for how many years we've been doing the newsletters online. We've got to have four or five new years on there. Yeah. And each one is good. It's like, uh, not that I want to discourage you from reading dive magazines, but you can get a little bit of information right here. Uh, and what I liked is, is, is and I'll, I'll read it almost verbatim, each diver in the dive group shares equal responsibility in conducting and, and for the conduct of a dive. When all divers understand and agree with the premise that the diving group can protect itself from individual and collective harm, know your personal limits and take time to examine and evaluate your dive habits. Do not rely on experience of other divers in the group. And this, I think, is important for people in the dive club. A dive club is not meant to be a certifying or training agency. You know, everybody's friendly, everybody's helpful, and we want to help you out. But you can't rely on it. It's not fair to the other divers in your dive club for you to just assume that they are going to save you and that you can just relax. You need to be vigilant. It's a, it's a, this is a risky sport. As a certified diver, you're expected to recognize the elements which are outside your level of training or comfort zone is your responsibility to acknowledge that and voice it. Always remember anyone can be called off a dive at any time. In other words, it's always okay to say no. And I have to say, when I was uh, the younger diver or the newer diver, I was very concerned because money, there wasn't a lot of money. So you had quite an investment just to get to the dive site. You know, you had your air fills, you had your equipment buys. Uh, I'm renting equipment in many cases. And you get on that boat and then something's not right. You hated to have to call that dive because that might represent, I mean, it might be a couple of weeks before you can afford to go back out again. But if you die... You don't get another dive in, or you get a permanent dive in forever. And where'd that come from? Was that a Dan article? Right. It's called uh, Dan Smart Guide Dive. It's bas- basically the whole section of it talks about uh, dive mistakes. Mm-hmm. No matter what your experience is, the stuff that you make. So I like to look and learn by somebody else's era and try not to do the same dive. Oh, those are the best ones. Let somebody else make the mistake. So excellent. So. Uh, an, another good one in the Mud Club dies, Dive Newsletter. And we will take uh, members from outside our area, won't we? Yes, we have um, 
people who live in Alaska and things like that. So, yeah. So if you want to be get us on Facebook and look at us. Yeah. And and if you go to Facebook, then you can always go over to the club site, take a look at the newsletters. Excellent. The back issues. Uh, we also had a few people uh, in the last week who have put their pin in our fan map. So you can go to Scuba Obsessed website, search around there, and I, can't, I should I should tell you how to get there, but maybe it's more fun if you have to find it. Uh, we've got our Scuba Obsessed fan map, so you can go and put a pin in the map and show everybody where you're at, and you could be as anonymous or as transparent as you want. Uh, so we, we thank those who have done that, give them some proper recognition. We had some pins, so you can take a look and see if you got some dive buddies in your area. Uh, even though we don't monetize the website, maybe someday we will, and it'll help us give us some credit. You can also follow us on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed, Facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. Uh, and if for some reason you want to follow me, I'm at Darren Jilson, D-A-R-R-I-N-J-I-L-L-S-O-N. Um, occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll post things, but it might not always be 100% scuba diving. It may be robotics. It may be technology. It may be what I'm eating this weekend, which is, as everybody at social media knows, is the most interesting thing ever. you have anything you want to plug, Mac? Not really, uh, other than if you're not diving, what's your excuse? Hey, get out there and dive. And tell us where you're diving. We like to hear. You want to talk to us? We're... At uh, you can you can send an email to the show at scubaobsessed.com and it'll get to us. If you don't hear back from me in some shape or form in a week, send it again because it may have missed me. You know, uh, in the flood of spam, I, I only get three or four hundred emails a day, so uh, you know it's possible to get missed. We also have a contact form on the website. You can also do that, uh, and it is just dive season. They drop it to Muddy Diver. We'll find it. Yep. So excellent. <clears throat> excellent. Excellent. So thanks again, once again, for everybody who's in the chat room. Vanessa, she finally had to take off. Uh, they they were hardcore tonight. They stuck in. We With the, with the Thursday, Thursday dives, we're not recording at a normal 9, a, 9 p.m. time. It's when we can all get together. So it can be a little bit later. And I think we started just before midnight tonight. So we have been chugging along. So thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, John, Mark, everybody else who's in the chat room. Oh, and somebody was asking, where is that Dan article, which I think we've got a link in it took, here. Um, it's in the newsletter. Yep. So it's in the newsletter. And I, if you're in the chat room, you can also get to it. So I'm going to paste it right in the chat room <laughs> and you can get to it. Are, are you ready for that time of the show? Sure I am. Okay, let me see. I'm 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 surprised you didn't talk about this week's diving though. Oh thank you for reminding me. We have to do that. God, I was skipping over it. So we dove this week. So yeah, so how was this week's diving? So well, last last Thursday. If you haven't been keeping track, I have been diving obviously every Thursday night with the club. Uh Wednesday nights with Sass's club. And on Fridays, uh I've been going out every Friday now with Kevin. We've been mowing the lawn. Uh-huh. And we've got a number of geological targets. And last week we did go out not to necessarily uh, scan, but to maybe dive something. So we wound up diving the intake tunnels again and got some video that I tried posting, but I somehow 
posted it, but it's not available. I'm going to have to work with it. But have you been inside the tunnel yet? Inside I have the- not. I have not actually ever made it to the tunnel. Okay. So I went back inside the, the, the box, mm-hmm. went all the way down under the ground again, and the intake tunnel that used to be clear mm-hmm. is now filled up with sand by maybe two-thirds. Really? Yeah. So and what was making it clear before and now the, it's... The hatch cover that used to be on top uh-huh. and removed. So oh. there is a big square that's available not only for me to enter, but for sand to enter. Oh, so that's, that's a, the only thing I can think. It's been quite a while since I've been down there. Ah. And then uh, later on, we went ahead and did a night dive that same night on the North Pier. And the visibility as you went around the pier, excuse me, was very good. And we were actually getting battered by fish. <laughs> the, the fish were attacking you? They would run into us. Ah. And I'm talking some good-sized fish. It's like, what the uh, heck is going on here? <laughs> so and kind I of Cooper River battered. If it was attracted to the lights or not. Huh. But uh, amazing number of fish down there. It was a, it was a fun dive. But uh, So we've been diving quite a bit. Excellent. And I think the river dives may start Saturday. Excellent. Good news. And they're going to be hitting. Oh, we hit the Havana again. You know that, right? Oh, you hit it again already? Yeah. And uh, been... they tried to hit it again Sunday. I think Bob was talking. You know, Bob was talking doing Havana on Saturday. This Saturday. Different company were thinking about doing the river. Yeah. Saturday, I have a. Well, it's actually my dive buddy Jim's youngest son has graduated from high school, so I've got his graduation to go to. And I got a nephew to go to. Our great nephew. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I can fit one in. Plus, I need to do some dive gear maintenance, something about a high-pressure hose that is, like, leaking a, like a sieve. Uh, I hear duct tape helps. <laughs> duct tape? <laughs> duct tape and high pressure? <laughs> uh, that might be something to videotape uh, and, and do with a, with a uh, bailout. Uh, so how was Lake Cora tonight? Actually, Lake Cora tonight was excellent. We had easy 15-foot fizz. Now, that is a record for me diving in Lake Cora. I've dove it a couple times. And uh, just to give people an idea, Lake Cora is a lake that's not far off of the 94 Highway, which connects Chicago to Detroit. Uh, I think it's on the north side of the road, isn't it? Eagle Lake's on the south side? Yes. Yeah, true. so on the north side. And usually, if you, did you go in the, the public access there? Yeah, we went to the north, to the uh, yeah. east side. And and it's a small lake. It's a, it's like a lake you might see in a subdivision where you've got 100 homes that border the lake. Uh, and that one, if I remember right, had a nice, you have a seaweed level where maybe about 15 feet down, and then there's like this hard barrier, and then it goes uh, no seaweed, and it's kind of dark. Yeah. Max depth is only 52 throughout the lake. Yeah. But... You know, right off the access point, you go straight out, hang right a little bit, and you've got a sailboat right off the bat. Mm-hmm. I remember the sailboat. Uh, There's also the a trampoline. trampoline. Yep. You've got uh, sprinkler system pipes down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got Usually. the toilet continuing down the side of the berm. Got another big boat. But visibility is good. Fish were everywhere. Yes, that is the one where, like, all around the trampoline, there's usually tons of fish. Somebody had had a deck of cards and spewed them everywhere, plastic ones. Oh. <laughs> so you go around the bottom and look around at the numbers. And I was detecting, so I picked up a couple of weights. 
Oh, nice. I love finding pouch weights. Yes. No, you say pouch weights, so these are diver weights. Soft lead, soft bags of lead. So these are scuba divers who had lost their weights. Yeah. So I'm paying. It works for me. Now, now core is one of them that the SAS group will occasionally hit, won't they? Yes. Okay. So so you do have some not always super – yeah, it's a training dive. It's it's not a bad dive location. It's not it's not one that everybody's going to write home about. But if you're looking for a nice spot, especially this time of year, I bet water temperature was pretty warm. It was seventy degrees on the surface. It's a sandy bottom out till you get past your chest. So it's great for having a you know eight or ten students, and you're not going to muck it up in the shallows. And then when you go out, the the vegetation was good. It's mm-hmm. semi hard pack. So you're not going to screw up the bottom too bad. You know, you just don't drag your gear through the to yeah. the mud. Yeah, it's one of the few inland lakes that hasn't been all silted up. Yeah, and Eagle Lake, if you've not been there, which is on the opposite side of the road, mm-hmm. is also another nice one. No unique items down there other than good water. Uh, uh, Eagle Lake, there is a an engine block. If you come out of the uh, the boat ramp, go to the right, stay just a little above the edge of the line where it goes from seaweed to i've been out in the middle with kurt where it seems when you get in that dark area if you like old beer cans that are mostly rusted away there's a bunch of them in the bottom but, but those are good. pretty nice those I are good very pleasantly surprised pawpaw we've been doing mm-hmm. uh, but visibility has been three to five unless you go out about kevin went to about 50 feet last week Went below the scud layer, and with mm-hmm. a light, you could see pretty good. Turned the light out, and that was ink. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting that time of year. Papa is a deceptively large lake, uh, quite a bit bigger than Lake Cora. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Lake, uh, I mean, Lake Cora and Eagle Lake are both good inland lakes if you get blown off of the big lake this time of year. Uh, but if you're doing some grubbing, I bet you have, uh, occasionally you can get lucky. But like you said, it was hard pack. Yeah. And of course, Lake 16, that's a nut. Mm-hmm. And there again, and that's yeah. a real good dive out there. That's a real good dive, but that's such a haul for us. Uh, for Kevin us. actually launched his boat this time and hit a couple of scans on the bottom, which are mm-hmm. interesting. Excellent. Yeah, I've wondered about that. This... I wish he'd have done more, but he was more interested in doing a tech dive. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's getting some good training in now. Yeah, he's, he's, he's doing it step by step. And like I said, he's up to his deep diving now at 150. Yeah, he's he's just diving all the time. That's how you get good. You just keep diving, keep Several improving. Times. Well, he did the Ironside solo, which was a little iffy, but the weather was good. It's buoyed. Now, when you say solo, he was the only one in his boat, too. Yeah, he was the only one out there. Yeah, I mean, single guy, no fa- you know, no close <laughs> family, I guess you can – kind of do it it's a little beyond what i would attempt but but again but he did doubles mm-hmm. bailout stage bottle also he did doubles and a bailout oh yeah then he oh yeah that deep um i mean he's got tech here for it with separate regulators on each mm-hmm. isolators uh then he had the tie-offs on there so he could get rid of his equipment you know yeah. on the surface tagline out even though we didn't need it yeah so he did all the right things and everything worked yeah. You know, and you know, calculated aspect, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's it's, it's it's. I think I think everybody deserves their chance to make decisions like that. 
Yeah. Uh, for me, the, the challenge of doing that, and I'm not criticizing Kevin because I, I think he's a good diver and a good friend, uh, would be the uh, if you did have something go wrong, you could have a, you could be in a situation where you could have a hard time driving yourself in. So even though you've got all your your gear, say you came up a little quick and you were able to get yourself in the boat, you now have to dive your you know that's it's what maybe forty minutes, thirty minutes to dive to drive from the wreck into the the bay into and the harbor. And off though, I'd put myself on O two, call up the coast guard, say help. Yeah, and that would be the smart thing to do. He, that way, he'd be buoyed; they know exactly where he's at. Yeah, yeah, because it's a known spot. I'm sure they've got that in their charts. Yeah. So, excellent. So, everybody, everybody's getting some dives in. I see that we're talking about this weekend. Uh, Bob was saying something about the, and he was thinking about doing Havana again, which is kind of puzzling why they want to do Havana again. But Excuse me? There's a lot of stuff out there you haven't seen yet. Uh-oh. What's something since we've been diving a couple of weeks ago? Well, it'd be really interesting to follow the anchor chain out. Uh-huh. I'll take the detector down and see if I can actually find the anchor okay. chain. Well, I mean, it's it's good. It's just usually Bob's got his schedule, and he, you know, you get the iron sides, and then you do the Ann Arbor Five, and then he that that gets him warmed up for his summer tech dives where he yep. starts to hit the deep stuff. But it's it's good that the Havana's got some interesting objects for people to go take a look at. Do you realize Sheboygan is two months away? Oh yeah, it's getting close. We're we're hitting. <laughs> We're past the midway point of June. This is what I'm saying. You need to get out there and get ready because if you're going to go up north and hit the big wrecks, you need a little time under your belt. Yeah, so if you're in the northern hemisphere, you're in prime diving season. If you're in the southern hemisphere, you're you're probably dreading that your winter season is is still going on, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I think, do we have any other dives did you get in? Did you do any more river dives or anything? Uh. Yeah, but it was about a foot and a half vis. Oh. <laughs> nothing nothing you're going to talk about. Okay. Yeah, but you got to keep giving that a try. Okay, and then just for, you know, people over time who have talked, and I, I thought we'd mentioned it last week, but we didn't get around to it, uh, Muhammad Ali passed away, and he was actually a resident of the town that I live in, Berrien Springs. So, you know, we're, we're sad to see him go. He was a great uh, member of the community, he donated a lot of money and time, uh, many community projects, uh, athletic fields, uh, parks. Uh, was just a, a real nice guy. And unfortunately, I never had a chance to meet him personally. I'd seen him from a distance. And it's one of those things where you have the Kevin Bacon seven degrees of separation. I knew 20 or 30 people who were good friends with him, but I just never over the years had had the occasion to meet him. I had an office downtown Bering Springs for a number of years, and I would go into the restaurant, and they said, oh, you just missed Muhammad Ali by a couple minutes. And he lived here in Bering Springs for a good 30, 35 years. Uh, in the later years, he moved back to Louisville, and then he also had a summer home in uh, in Arizona. But he he will certainly be missed. He was a great asset to our community here. And if you listened on the show, we had talked about diving at the Al Capone uh, place, and that was actually owned currently for about the last 40-some years by Muhammad Ali. Uh, so maybe we should do a dive out there just to to break it in. Uh, did we ever find any bottles out there? Out where? Off the estate, the Capone estate. 
Not as far as I know. Yeah. It's one of those things where it sounded good because, you know, you always figured, you know, gangsters, Prohibition era, there had to be a whole bunch of cool stuff right there off the off the docks on the river, but never seemed to pan out. Okay, let's see. Let's take a look. Okay. How, how about this one? You ready? Ready. Some tourists in the Museum of Natural History are marveling at some dinosaur bones. One of them asked a guard, can you tell me how old these dinosaur bar- bones are? The guard replies, they are three million, four years, and six months old. That's an awful exact number, says a tourist. How do you know their age so precisely? The guard answers, well, the dinosaur bones are three million years old when I started working here, and that was four and a half years ago. <laughs> it's as accurate as anybody else's number. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and we said they were bad. So on that note, go out there and get what? And stay safe. been completed.